You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. I don't tend to draw distinctions between the various ages of piracy. When I talk about the golden age of piracy, I see a clear and distinct line between figures like Hayredin Barbarossa and Blackbeard, with a good dose of Sir Francis Drake thrown in there. And sure, there are some pretty distinct differences between the Buccaneers and the Pirates of Nassau. There were about 40 years between those two major outbreaks of piracy. But it's not like they were completely distinct groups of people. In the rum sinks at Nassau, there were men who had sailed with Henry Every. They were drinking with men who had sailed with men who had sailed with Henry Morgan. So, while we might talk about the Buccaneers or the Pirates of the Round, I don't want to give the impression that they were really all that different from each other. However, there's something about the Pirates of Nassau and the Republic of Pirates that really stands out. Those pirates are really the last great age of piracy. Now, it's certainly not the last group of pirates that we'll be talking about on this show. We've still got quite a ways to go before we get to Zhang Shi and Jean Lafitte. But this is the last era in which pirates really dominated the consciousness of the world. It's the big one, you know, Ed Teach, Mary Reed, Calico Jack. For a lot of people, when they talk about the golden age of piracy, this is what they mean. And today, we're beginning our look at the pirates of the height of the golden age. 
But this story doesn't begin on board a ship, or even in a dirty little dockside tavern in Nassau. This story begins in the gilded halls of power. This is episode 300, The Gordian Knot. This golden age of piracy begins in a war, as did really all the other great ages of piracy. This war was terrible and brutal and world-spanning, and it involved all the powers of Western Europe. But the reasons that this war began weren't, you know, resources or ideology. I think we all kind of know that all wars are really about power. Even the so-called good wars, you know, a war of independence from foreign domination, that's a good thing, or wars against a brutal dictatorship, yeah, I can get behind that, but the root of it is always power. We can hope that the winners of those wars are those who support liberty and freedom and all of the values that we hold dear, and in doing so we can frame those wars in a mostly positive light. But this war doesn't have any of that. There is no ideological struggle to fall back on. All of the leaders in this conflict hold the exact same ideology, because all of the leaders of this war are members of the same family. The royal families of early modern Western Europe were all, or almost all, members of the same single dynastic heritage. And I don't think I'm going to shock anyone when I say that there was a lot of inbreeding going on in that dynastic heritage. You know, back in school, I remember learning about the dangers of inbreeding by looking at pictures of these people. In particular, pictures of the person who is the catalyst for this whole war. This war is going to be called the War of the Spanish Succession, because the King of Spain is about to die without an heir. The problem here, though, is twofold. First, all of these dynastic lines, because they're really all just one big family, well, they've all got good claims on the throne of Spain. So what it came down to wasn't really who has the right to the throne, but about who has the power. Might makes right, after all. And the subjects of all of these relatives are going to fight and suffer and die for years to figure out who has the most power. To help me understand what's going on here, I want to begin with a survey of the powers that are going to be fighting this war. It's a complicated mess of royal lines that make up the leadership of all these kingdoms, and I want to kind of define who they are, so we can understand why this war began. Our first stop is going to be in England. But even though most of the pirates we're going to be focused on from here on out, for a while anyway, even though most of them come from the English-speaking world, England itself was a step removed from all of this dynastic mess. William III, the King of England, was Dutch. His family had a ton of ties to the Stuart dynasty. His wife, Mary, now dead, well, she was a Stuart herself. In fact, William and Mary were Stuart monarchs, they just deposed the last Stuart monarch. 
the deposed former King James II, isn't really going to play much of a role in this upcoming war. He's about to die, in fact. But he and his son and his sister are all living in France. And while they're not going to play a huge role in this war, they are going to play a giant role in the outbreak of piracy that is to follow. We can never really take our eyes off the Jacobites. The sister of the former King James II was also living in France, but she was actually a member of the royal family. She married the Duc d'Orléans, King Louis's younger brother. And her daughter, the nephew of King Louis XIV, is married to the Spanish king who's at the heart of all this trouble. So while England is a step removed from all of this dynastic mess, they're really only one step removed. They're still in it. But that does bring us to the meat and potatoes of what I want to talk about today. The royal houses of France, Spain, and the Holy Roman Empire were a confusing, convoluted mess. And they'd been so for several hundred years at this point. The best way I can find to explain what's happening here is to go back about 200 years to the early 1500s. Queen Elizabeth up in England wasn't yet the queen. She was still just a princess, and it didn't look likely that she was ever going to sit on any throne. Down on the continent, though, one man was in control of most of Europe. We know him usually as Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. And actually, no, wait. We really need to go back a little bit further, to the 1400s and his grandparents. Charles' grandparents on his mother's side were Ferdinand and Isabella, the two Spanish monarchs who sent Columbus on his voyage. On his father's side, thanks to a few fortuitous deaths, Charles was heir to the Holy Roman Empire and the Austrian House of Habsburg. And, you know, technically the Holy Roman Empire was an elective monarchy and they didn't have heirs exactly, but by this point, let's be honest, it was a dynastic monarchy that belonged to the Habsburgs anyway. At the height of his power, Charles V was the king of a now unified Spanish kingdom, and the Holy Roman Emperor. He was also the king of a technically non-affiliated kingdom down in southern Italy called the Kingdom of Naples. Now, before he died, Charles split up his inheritances. With three successions to his name, he didn't want to give them all to one person. His son, Philip, he gave Spain. And that would go on to be Philip II, who would try to invade England in 1588, where Francis Drake fought. His brother, Ferdinand, he gave the Holy Roman Empire, and he became Ferdinand I, Holy Roman Emperor. The Kingdom of Naples, though, was a bit trickier. See, there were three territories in Europe that were causing problems all throughout this period the Duchy of Milan, the Spanish Netherlands, and the Kingdom of Naples. Now, I don't want to sit here and try to unpack all of the weird rules surrounding those three territories, because all of them officially belong to someone on paper, but in reality are actually ruled by someone else, but actually belong to this other empire over here. It's confusing and a mess, and really not important. 
But they are at the root of all of this conflict, even the war that's about to begin. When Charles V died, a war broke out over the kingdom of Naples. That war was between the king of Spain and the king of France. The kings of France, thanks to their own ties to the Habsburgs and the kingdom of Naples, had a very good claim on the throne of Naples. But then the French king died. He did not yet have a readily apparent proper heir. So a new French dynasty was born. Henry IV, Henri IV, became the first Bourbon king of France. And, you know, y'all remember Henry IV, right? He was that Protestant king of Navarre that claimed the French throne, but, in the end, converted to Catholicism. He's the one who said Paris is well worth a mass. Well, when he became king, Henry wanted to put an end to all of these wars with Spain that were draining his treasury. He sued for peace with the Spanish king, and he got it. Spain was equally eager to end this series of disastrous wars. That peace was formalized by two royal marriages. The first was a marriage between Henry's son, Louis, soon to be Louis XIII, and the Spanish princess, the Infanta, Anne. The second marriage was between Henry's daughter, Elizabeth, and the heir to the Spanish throne, great-grandson of Charles V, the soon-to-be Philip IV of Spain. Did you follow that? Both monarchs, Philip III of Spain and Henry IV of France, sent their daughters to the other's court to marry their sons. They've got kind of a double alliance now, and we should never forget that a queen from a foreign country was always an outsider and usually looking after the interests of her own birth family. In a very real way, a queen from a foreign country was always kind of a spy. You know, every king had to be careful what he said in front of his wife, or that might just get back to her father. But for now, everything's neat and tidy and clean, simple. This should all last, right? They've got two good alliances built. It's worth pointing out here that all of these people are related. Henry's children and the children of Philip III were all what my grandma used to call kissin' cousins. That's, she was kind of a weird lady, but they were second cousins. It's a little weird, a little incestuous, but not nearly as bad as it's going to get. All of these kissin' cousins got around to having a ton of kids, but there are two that I want to single out here. Louis XIII and Queen Anne had a son named Louis, who would go on to become Louis XIV, the Sun King. We all know him. Philip IV and Queen Elizabeth had a daughter, Maria Theresa. And then, because of some new tensions that were building between France and Spain, those two children, Louis and Maria Theresa, they got married. They were first cousins. But they were kind of more than that. They were kind of double first cousins because both of their families were from both of their other families. And beyond that, both of those families were already second cousins. So 
Already it's getting confusing and complicated, and they're way too closely related to be getting married, but they did. More important than that, though, we need to think about the marriage contract between Louis XIV and Maria Theresa. It's stipulated that Maria Theresa, an infanta of Spain, upon her marriage into the French royal family, would rescind any and all claims she or her descendants might have to the Spanish crown. Louis XIII agreed to this stipulation and signed the contract, but that contract also stipulated that the Spanish crown would pay a massive dowry to the French. 500,000 gold crowns, according to historian James Faulkner. Now, I'm not 100% clear on what unit of currency he's talking about when he says a crown, a gold crown. But I'm pretty sure he's talking about what was the most prominent form of currency used in Europe at the time, the Louis. The French gold coin, which, in weight and purity of gold, was an exact twin to the Spanish gold doubloon. So, either one works. But he's saying it's 500,000 of those, which is an amazing amount of money. However, the Spanish Empire is vast... It has many profitable gold mines, so you think they'd be able to pay that massive dowry, right? Well, you'd be wrong, because they didn't. They failed to pay the dowry. King Louis XIV, once he came into his own, well, he believed that that failure to pay voided certain other agreements in the marriage contract, most notably his wife's renunciation of her claim to the Spanish throne. Louis XIV believed that he, really his children, had a right to pursue those claims, and he used them as a causus belli for starting the Franco-Dutch War in 1672. We all remember the Franco-Dutch War around here, of course, the Third Anglo-Dutch War, as it's also known. That war saw a lot of naval fighting in the West Indies, including a lot of privateers. It gave rise to those kind of second-wave buccaneers, men like Lauro de Graff and Michel de Grammont, Thomas Paine, Jan Willems, that set. At its core, though, that war was about France claiming territory in the Spanish Netherlands and the Rhineland. Now, the Spanish Netherlands were the property of the King of Spain, hence Spanish Netherlands, and just to be clear what we're talking about, they equate roughly to modern-day Belgium. But the Spanish Netherlands were not technically part of the Spanish Empire. Instead, they were technically part of the Holy Roman Empire. All of which is thanks to some treaties that had been signed a couple of hundred years earlier. And, you know, really that's the same reason that those other states we talked about, like the Duchy of Milan and the Kingdom of Naples, all of those are tied up in all of these old, late medieval treaty negotiations. It's confusing and confounding, and I only understand a fraction of any of it. Really, you'd need an expert to cut to the heart of this. For me, I'd just use a machete. But that does bring us to the Holy Roman Empire and Leopold I, Holy Roman Emperor. Leopold, it should be noted here, was also a first cousin to both King Louis of France and his wife Maria Theresa, formerly of Spain. They all shared a grandfather in the person of Philip III, King of Spain. 
His mother was Maria Anna, the Holy Roman Empress. She was the sister of Philip IV, who was the King of Spain, and also the sister of Queen Anne of France. If you're not exactly following all of these ties, don't worry about it. You don't really need to know any of this. I'm just trying to illustrate exactly how intertwined all of these people are. They're all related. They're all one family. And when you start to look at how all of these people are actually related to each other, it starts to get pretty creepy. And I think we all know, on like an intellectual level, yes, they were all incestuous and everything was weird and wrong, but, I mean, when you really start to look at the nuts and bolts of it and think about how these people were actually related to each other, I mean, imagine marrying your cousin. There's going to be some weirdness here. You've got women that actually marry their uncle. You know, an uncle and a niece getting hitched. And you've also got a few theorized unmarried couplings from maybe even closer relatives thrown in there. I'm talking about a brother or even a father who has to step in and do the job of producing an heir because so many of these Habsburgs were sterile because of all the inbreeding. And it's not like they didn't know it was a problem. They all knew it was bad and dangerous to keep marrying into the same family over and over and over, generation after generation, but they kept doing it anyway. They even had to get, for most of these marriages, a special permission from the Pope. But, of course, the Pope just gave his permission and they kept on doing it. But you've got to wonder, if they know it's a bad thing, why did they keep doing it? Well, first of all, of course, there's that ancient idea that blue blood is pure and good, and it's tainted whenever any outside influences come in. If you want a king, his mother has to be a queen. And if you want a Habsburg king, his mother has to be a Habsburg queen. It's insane. But beyond that, there was the, honestly, understandable, I guess, notion that members of their own family were going to be loyal to their own family. If every queen was kind of a spy, what do you do? Well, I guess the obvious answer is just to make sure that whomever she is reporting back to are the same family. After all, who can you trust more than your own family? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So that's all horrible. 
You know, I chose the title Gordian Knot for today's episode because all of these intertwined marriages are so complex it gets almost impossible to untangle. The Gordian Knot, of course, was that knot presented to Alexander said to be impossible to untie, so Alexander pulled out his sword and cut right through it. Now, as far as I know, Louis XIV never compared himself to Alexander the Great, although he did compare himself to the god Mars, but Louis XIV, just like Alexander the Great, did plan to cut through this tangled mess of Habsburg inheritance with a sword. You might say it's the defining characteristic of his reign. When that Franco-Dutch war ended, a lot of territory changed hands. You know, cities and principalities all around the Spanish Netherlands and the Rhineland, nothing that consequential in the big scheme of things. But there were a few very consequential terms that were private written into the treaty. James Faulkner writes in The War of the Spanish Succession, quote, The king, Louis, concluded a confidential treaty with Emperor Leopold I of Austria. They would divide the Spanish inheritance and empire should, as widely anticipated, the young Spanish king not live long enough to be survived by an heir of his own. End quote. Essentially, Leopold I would claim the Spanish throne, including their overseas territories, all of the Americas, and France would get a bunch of territory in Europe. They would get the Spanish Netherlands, they would get Luxembourg and Flanders, and then the biggest prize of all, France finally would get the Kingdom of Naples. And we should never underestimate just how much France wanted Naples. They wouldn't stop fighting about it until after Napoleon. But that secret treaty was pretty good. You know, it might have stopped a lot of wars before they began, answered a lot of these territorial questions that had been building for the last 300 years. However, it required the King of Spain to die soon which everyone expected to happen, you know, any day now, the King of Spain was not well. He was the culmination of generations of inbreeding, that Gordian knot of incest we've been talking about. But first let's talk about his name. Conventionally, he's called Charles II of Spain. At least that's how we in the English-speaking world usually refer to him. Of course, to his own people, who spoke Spanish, he was known as King Carlos. In his own family, though, more likely he was called Carl, because they still spoke German in those Habsburg households. And then, of course, diplomatically, because French was the language of diplomacy, he was called Charles. We're going to call him Carlos II, though. That's how his people knew him and how he's referred to in many of our primary sources. Carlos II was the son of Philip IV, Louis XIV's father-in-law, and at the same time Louis XIV's uncle. His mother was Mariana of Austria, after whom the Marianas Trench is named. And do you remember when I said that the Habsburgs married young women to their uncles? Well, that wasn't idle talk. Mariana of Austria was married off to her uncle, Philip IV. 
This was because his first wife had already died in childbirth. Their child also died, genetically deformed, because let's be clear here, their gene pool was a cesspit. Philip IV and his young niece, Mariana, had a son, Carlos. And Carlos was messed up. Now, I want to be sensitive here. There are a lot of words that have been used to describe King Carlos that really aren't cool to say. There's the R word, which we don't use anymore, and initially, I called Carlos II deformed. And that's, you know, accurate, but the word deformed is generally frowned upon these days. It can be offensive to people with a wide variety of varying conditions. Generally, we should try to talk about the specific conditions people have, rather than generalize with terms like deformed. The problem is, we don't know exactly what was wrong with Carlos II. We've got a ton of second-hand stories and rumors, but actual clinical diagnosis is difficult. The most obvious thing, the thing that you are all thinking about when you think about Carlos II, is his jaw. Clinically, it's called mandibular prognathism. You've probably heard it more commonly, though, called the Habsburg jaw. That's where the lower jaw sticks out way farther than the upper. It's like an underbite on steroids. All of the Habsburg men have this, but Carlos had it so bad that, as a boy, he had real trouble chewing and swallowing his food. You know, he'd kind of drop it into that lower jaw and try to chew, but it would just slide back and he'd wind up choking on his meat. They had to kind of mash his food up for him. Now, that is a genetic abnormality. That is thanks probably to all of the inbreeding. And it's something that we see in virtually every man who belonged to the Habsburg dynasty, although no one as distinct as King Carlos. But beyond that, there were other abnormalities about his physical condition that we can't really verify, but a lot of people talk about. For example, the tail. Many people have said that he was born and lived with a tail. Now, that's not unheard of in human beings. There are several groups that have it all around the world, but apparently his was prehensile, like a monkey's. He could move it, which I don't believe that, but that's what some people said. What's more, webbed feet, and slightly, although not terribly, webbed fingers. How much of those things are true, it's hard to say. Moreover, the, there's a question about what can be attributed to inbreeding here, and how much of it is actually the fault of his many severe early childhood illnesses. He was prone to all kinds of sickness and spent most of his youth in a sickbed. Some of these could have caused some of the abnormalities that he is rumored to have suffered. But, you know, you can see why everyone in Europe assumed he was gonna die pretty soon. And since his father was over 60 at this point, it's unlikely that he would produce another heir. And since his daughter was his niece, that heir would probably be equally messed up. Without any other good Spanish royals with a decent claim on the throne, the closest claimant was Leopold I, Holy Roman Emperor. So, in that context, 
The secret deal between Emperor Leopold and King Louis kind of makes sense. Problem is, Carlos II didn't die. He just kept on living. He got stronger as he got older, too. By the time he was an adolescent, he could mostly move around on his own. And by the time he was a young adult, he could walk and run and ride a horse and shoot a bow. He was fond of hunting. It was his favorite thing to do. He wasn't, you know, much of a dancer, and apparently he had some severe issues having sex, so he never had a child, but he could take care of himself. According to most of the people who knew him, his mind was pretty sharp. He may have had some kind of mental disability, but it wasn't too severe. He was able to hold court, which did happen, rarely, but it did. He spoke with advisors and even emissaries from foreign kingdoms. He could get by, but not to be trusted with the reins of power. The serious decisions, the actual business of government, that was all handled by his mother, who would serve as regent until her death. After her death, the king's wife took up the job. That was Marie-Louise d'Orléans, which is his, let me see here, first cousin once removed. She was his first cousin's daughter. That cousin was the younger brother of Louis XIV, the Duc d'Orléans. The queen's mother was someone we've already mentioned today, Henrietta of England, Duchess d'Orléans, which is, of course, King James' brother. I really, I just cannot stress how tightly all of these people are tied to one another by bonds of family. And they shouldn't be, but they were. So let's turn back to the tensions between Leopold I and Louis XIV. Since Carlos II just refused to die, all those secret clauses were null and void. France went back to nipping away at the Spanish possessions on her border in wars like the War of the Reunions. Then, in 1689, France tried to chip just a little more territory away from Spain, and everyone went ballistic. The whole of Europe rose up to check King Louis, and the Nine Years' War happened. As we have discussed, at some length, it was a pretty terrible war. It spread from the Rhineland to Italy to the Pyrenees, and then to the whole world. Nine years later, 680,000 men were dead. And that's just military fatalities. The cost in civilian lives may have been even larger. There were famines in France and Italy, so a ton of lives were lost to starvation, but then there's just basic displacement or murder. It's impossible to calculate how many were killed, but it was a lot. Which is to say nothing of those who were brutalized, but survived the war. Mostly, that was, of course, women and girls in occupied territories. Beyond that, though, all of the powers of Europe were now broke. They were out of money. I'm fairly certain that this was the most expensive war that had ever been fought up to that point. Because it's not just France. It's France and all of her colonies and all of her allies. It's not just the Netherlands or England. It's all of those colonies and all of those allies. You know, if... France was running low on food, and they were for much of the war. They needed, say, rations for the sailors. Well, this was the war in which rice became a worldwide commodity, 
became popular because France could just write to their good friends in the Win dynasty over in Vietnam and they'd get a few hundred tons of rice shipped their way. By 1696, France was exhausted in every sense of the word, and it looked like they very well might just lose the war, but they had one last coup to play. The Duchy of Savoy was among the more powerful states within the Holy Roman Empire, kind of like Austria or Prussia, Bavaria, Milan. There were a lot of these. Savoy sat just south of Switzerland and made up much of what the Romans considered Cisalpine Gaul. It comprised the Holy Roman Empire's southern border with France, and in 1696, France pushed Savoy into a treaty agreement. There was a military push against Savoy, and they caved. They signed a separate peace with France, and they agreed in that peace to push Leopold to sign another treaty all of his own. This loss compromised the entire war effort for the Allies, and it pushed the Empire into an unworkable position. Leopold I was forced to sign his own peace treaty with France. Now, that was against the rules. The agreement he made when he joined what they called the Grand Alliance was that no one would make a separate peace, but he had to. He didn't really have any choice here. So, when the maritime powers, England and the Netherlands, when they sat down to peace talks with France a couple of years later, the empire was not represented in those talks. The terms that were agreed between France and the empire were incorporated into that peace, but that had just been a ceasefire. None of the concerns that were on Leopold's mind were addressed in the peace treaty that was signed here in 1698. When it came time to talk about dynastic concerns, specifically the throne of Spain, Leopold wasn't even asked what he thought about it. But what they came up with wasn't too bad. There were a lot of choices to sit on the throne of Spain. The two leading candidates were the son of Leopold I and the son of Louis XIV. Neither was acceptable to anyone who was not Leopold or Louis. But the maritime powers came up with a solution. They found a good, neutral candidate. Joseph Ferdinand Wittelsbach. And, sorry to our German-speaking listeners, I just can't do that back-of-the-throat noise. Joseph Ferdinand was, as were all of his family, a good Catholic, which was necessary for ruling Spain. His family, the Wittelsbach, were the rulers of Bavaria, within the Holy Roman Empire. Their standard, in fact, is basically the flag of modern-day Bavaria. Their sons were important men all over the empire, they were the leaders of the Teutonic Knights. Many of them held archbishoprics all around Germany. A few of them were dukes in some smaller areas. They were also, though, the imperial protectors of the Spanish Netherlands. The head of the household, Joseph Ferdinand's father, was the governor-general of the Spanish Netherlands. He, he did a pretty good job in the Spanish Netherlands, and that was a big recommendation for this new job as the king of Spain. Even bigger, though, despite their many positions of authority within the Holy Roman Empire, 
the House of Wittelsbach was distinct from the House of Habsburg. They weren't too interconnected. So, while the Holy Roman Emperor would have influence with the new King of Spain, he would have no power there. Beyond that, the Wittelsbach had excellent relations with the House of Orange-Nassau. The Spanish Netherlands, where they were the governor-generals, was right next door to the regular Netherlands. William III knew them, and mostly could work with them. So, he was happy. England and the Netherlands were happy. Louis was, well, not happy. He couldn't complain too much, though. It was certainly better than a Habsburg, and, you know, he was losing this war, so what was he going to do? Leopold, though, was kind of okay with it. It took some time for him to come around. He really wanted to put his son on the throne, but come around he did. In the interest of peace, he decided to agree, even though he didn't really have a choice. Finally, though, after years of bloodletting and suffering and war and pain and death, they had an agreement. Peace in our time. Everybody could finally relax. Joseph Ferdinand Wittelsbach is here to make everything better. In the wake of this huge promotion, the crown prince of Bavaria, Joseph Ferdinand, went to visit his father up in the Spanish Netherlands. There, he would officially accept his new position and prepare to become the, ooh, the King of Spain. It was a big deal. As soon as he arrived, Joseph Ferdinand Wittelsbach caught smallpox and died. Well, crap. What now? Next time, all of Europe descends back into war. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support this show. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, everybody who has recommended this show, and all of our supporters on Patreon, without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
tonight